Welcome to season two of Faith and Freedom Fighters. I am Robert Muse, co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center, and I am joined, as always, by my fellow co-founder, senior counsel, and freedom fighter, David Yershami. And so for our uh, Christian audience out there, I'll say happy St. Patrick's Day. Um, I'm not wearing green. I'm, uh, I'm not of Irish descent, but I went to Notre Dame uh, Law School, so I consider myself to be a fighting Irish. And those who are watching on, uh, on the video cast, you'll see that my, uh, my colleague is, uh, is dressed in a, uh, as a cowboy, and uh, he's celebrating the Jewish holiday of Purim, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And, and uh, David, welcome. Give, us, give our audience just a, a thumbnail sketch of what this uh, Jewish holiday is all about. Well, back uh, before the um, common era um, over... 2,500 years ago, uh, there was a, a king in, in Persia, what is now modern Iran. And at the time, King Ahasuerus ruled 127 nations. It was the height of the Iranian dynasty, the Persian dynasty. And he got tired of one of his wives and had a big party and, and decided he wanted to had all the young maidens of the, of the uh, surrounding areas bring their daughters and he decided on a queen and it happened to be Esther, the niece of the Jewish leader of the generation, Mordechai. And he married Esther and it turned out that he had um, appointed as the minister of just about everything under him, Haman, uh, an evil fellow who hated Jews um, and decided ultimately that he wanted to destroy the Jews. Um, the Jews fasted and Esther went to the king and rather um, presumptuously presented the case that if he wanted, if the king was going to kill the Jews, then they would, he would have to kill her. And of course, his favorite wife, and he was distraught. And he said, but I can't renege on my seal of war against the Jews. And he said, but what I can do is allow the Jews to fight. So the Jews prepared and they were allowed by the king to defend themselves. And they did. And they were victorious. And this story was written down in a scroll called Megillat Esther, the scroll of Esther. And on Purim, we have four mitzvahs or commandments that we're obliged to do. One is read the Megillah both at the night of Purim in the morning, and we listen to the Megillah, and every time Haman's name is mentioned in the story, the kids yell and scream, boo, boo, and it's uh, a fun time for them. And um, on Purim Day, that's today, we have um, the commandment to give to the poor, money to the poor. We have a commandment to send gifts of prepared food to our neighbors, and we um, hear the Megillah again this morning. And finally, in the afternoon, we have a Purim Suda, Purim meal, a feast. And we're commanded to get to the point of Adul Yoda until we don't know the difference between the righteous Mordecai and the evil Haman. And our rabbis say, one very good way to do that is to drink to the point of you don't know the difference. Well, I warmed up a little bit last night, so if I seem under the weather this morning, that's why. And um, I intend to fulfill that commandment as I do every year, um, 
quite uh, zealously. And and so what's with the uh, what's with the uh, cowboy uh, outfit? So How does that fit? Informed because the the righteous Mordecai and the Jews were able to overcome the evil Haman, and Mordecai was appointed one of the main uh, ministers for the king afterward. We have this concept that it turned evil upside down into righteousness, and that um, it's a it's a holiday of everything goes upside down. So the kids dress up as costumes, um, we dress up uh, adults. And kind of the, the, the crazier and the nuttier the holo- the costume, the better. And uh, um, I've invested, as you know, mostly I come on with my court clothes. I'm not uh, so, uh, um, as it were, uh, familiar and or intimate. But uh, I invested in one cowboy outfit. So one day a year, I get to wear my blue jeans, my cowboy vest, my cowboy shirt with the pearl buttons and my cowboy hat one day a year <laughs> and here it is and it happened to fall on a day we do podcasts so how about that all right so uh, now that we have our lesson on uh, on jewish uh, religious holidays um you know we missed uh, last week uh, because i was in cincinnati before appearing before the uh, u.s court of appeals for the sixth circuit in two important cases and i just want to uh, touch upon those very briefly we have quite a few things we were hoping to accomplish and to discuss today during this podcast. <clears throat> the first case was a, uh, I was co-counsel. Uh, so I didn't argue, argue the case, but I helped on the briefing and helped with the preparation for the argument and was present at counsel's table during the argument was a, uh, was an en banc, meaning that it's a rarity when the full court takes up a case. It's that important that the full court wants to hear it. Normally you argue before a three judge panel as a matter of right. Uh, but this is before a 17 uh, judge panel. And it was a challenge to the uh, the mask mandate here in the uh, in the state of Michigan on behalf of a uh, Catholic religious school and parents who uh, who objected to the uh, the mask mandate for their uh, for their children and for the, the students of the school. And uh, we we lost in the panel decision petition for a hearing on Bonk and the court granted it. So hopefully there'll be a, a very good decision coming down. And one of the main issues on uh, for that appeal was the question of um, under free exercise, what counts as a comparator, meaning, okay, you know, their argument was um, this mask mandate applies to religious schools as well as public schools. But in recent Supreme Court precedents, like that's not good enough. You look at what is the risk of the harm they're trying to mitigate and do they, uh, do they discriminate against religion uh, on that basis? So for example, you know, you can sit in a movie theater, you can sit in a restaurant, you can have any number of people sitting in a restaurant for any number of period of time without a mask on. And, uh, you know, and, and is there a risk of COVID spreading there? Of course. Is the, and it, in fact, the demographics of those who go into restaurant, uh, kids are, are less susceptible to, to having adverse consequences from COVID. So the argument is that, look, if, you, if you're going to allow the restaurants and things, it doesn't make sense. It violates religious exercise to impose a, a burden upon the, the religious group. So anyway, so that case is... Uh, is now before uh, in the hands of the 17 judges waiting for an opinion. It's going to take probably several months to come out. And then the very next morning, I argued, uh, I argued the case before a three judge panel in our lawsuit challenging um, these draconian speech restrictions that were imposed by the city of Detroit during the 2019 democratic uh, 
party presidential debates the the for the 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 um the candidates when they were the candidates for the the president in 2019 the primaries, they, the primaries. The, yeah and, and and so they had they had debates in the fox theater in 2019 representing this pro-life group they put in place these draconian restrictions which kept them so far away quite frankly they put these restrictions in place because uh cnn news cameras didn't want to have any outdoor images of protesters anywhere near the fox theater so they the city police you know cooperated and pushed them all out in fact they but they allowed a, a candidate support corral, that's what they called it, right in front of the cameras where you could have signs supporting your candidates. And that was permitted by the, uh, the city of Detroit and their police department. But if you oppose them, um, then you were sent off to the hinterland and weren't allowed to uh, protest near, uh, near the, the building. And, and, um, and obviously we believe that that violated the First Amendment. So I argued that case um, last, uh, last Thursday morning. And that'll take again several months for that uh, for that case to to wind its way through. Um, our breaking news really is our recently filed federal lawsuit challenging the Biden uh, administration Department of Defense uh, vaccine mandate for service members. And in this case, we have the privilege, and it really is a privilege, to represent uh, four Navy SEALs. Uh, these four men are strong, devout Christian men. Who, uh, who obviously love our country. They're willing to put their life on the line in defense of our freedoms and who, who know implicitly the importance of fighting for fundamental rights, specifically including the right to the free exercise of religion. So unfortunately, these men now have to file a federal civil rights lawsuit to protect their freedoms. And that being the freedom to ob object on religious grounds to these vaccine mandates that we know don't work. And when you think about it, Navy SEALs are, are you know, some of the most fit men in the world. They are probably of, the, of a demographic that's least susceptible to succumbing any, any adverse consequences of COVID. It's Navy SEALs. In fact, they've, they've, all had, they've all had COVID. It was like a mild cold for them. They have natural immunity and yet they're still pressing them to get this, uh, to get this mandate, uh, to get this vaccine, even now when the pandemic is essentially over, and because they um, they object to it, they're subject to punishment, including prosecution and criminal penalties, discharge from the, the military, removal from special warfare operations, adverse fitness reports, loss of pay and benefits, loss of education, training opportunities, loss of personal decorations and insignia, including their special warfare seal trident insignia. And all of that undoubtedly places a substantial burden on their exercise of religion. And under federal statutory law, which is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA, as well as the First Amendment, um, the government can't do that. And, and RIFRA, as well as the First Amendment, also protect military members uh, as well as private citizens. And quite frankly, it's, uh, it's rather shameful, in my view, what the Biden administration and his Department of Defense are doing to these warriors. Um, if anything, when you look, uh, I mean, just watch the news. You see the world is a far less safe place today than, a, than it was even a year ago uh, because of our weak president. But we need more good men in our military, warriors like these Navy SEALs. And the guys we need to get rid of are these woke military leaders that, uh, that Biden has in place that are making decisions like this, which are purely political decisions. So we got that lawsuit filed and we had to also, because of the nature of the work that these four Navy SEALs do, uh, we had to uh, file a special motion 
called a motion to proceed pseudonymously, that meaning they don't proceed under their actual names. They're proceeding as Navy SEAL 1, Navy SEAL 2, Navy SEAL 3, and Navy SEAL 4. You have to get special permission from the chief, chief judge in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia in Washington, D.C., where we filed uh, to proceed that way. And so we had to file a motion, which we did, and the judge recently granted it. And then the, the complaint was, uh, was filed under, their, uh, under the pseudonyms. So that is uh, that one was just officially filed. It was it was uh, technically filed on Friday, March 11th, but uh, the docket sheet became public uh, this past uh, on on the 14th. Once the judge the uh, order was approved for for them to proceed under the pseudonyms of uh, Navy Seal, and so that litigation is is moving forward. If uh, one of them's already um, been threatened with uh, separation, all his requests for exemptions have been denied and uh, will likely be filing a preliminary injunction probably in the upcoming uh, weeks. So that's, that's kind of a snapshot of things that have happened just really since the last time we had a podcast. And uh, David, welcome again. And uh, if you have any uh, comments you want to offer about this, uh, this case before we move into one of the other topics that we we're going to talk about today. Well, first of all, um, I, like you, consider it an honor to represent these men and their families effectively, and by extension, all men in the service, men and women in the services, um, who have a sincerely held religious belief. And on the one hand, our government expects these men not just to go on missions and put their lives at intimate risk of death. I mean, we're not talking about some generic sense. And um, for those of you who don't know, my colleague, Rob Muse, my co-podcaster here, um, served um, in the Marine Corps as an infantry officer and served um, overseas during the Gulf War in the Middle East. So um, he certainly knows something about that. Um, And I do by extension. And the fact is, is that um, not only on missions, but on just training, these men are exposed to death and physical harm all the time. So you take that, and the fact is, Rob pointed out, they're the healthiest, strongest guys around. And um, you tell them that if they're not prepared to have a vaccine for a pandemic, which is now considered an endemic, it's not even considered a pandemic, it's like a very bad season of the flu at this point, um, that they're going to lose their their ability to serve the country. And of course, we spent millions of dollars of taxpayers' money training these fellows and keeping them at the fighting edge um, of their abilities. And it just makes no sense. And especially because so many of the other servicemen are vaccinated or they've had COVID. And so we know that they're effectively immune. And, and the one-off that might get sick and then might even um, have a fatal outcome, uh, it's one-off. It's no different than a bad case of the flu. And to, and to transition that just to the earlier case, and I, I applaud my colleague, Rob Muse, for filing the lawsuit. It's, they're not easy lawsuits to, to deal with. You're dealing in the District of Columbia, um, federal courts. Um, you've got to deal with proceeding um, pseudonymously, um, which is some steps and, and bells and whistles you have to go through. Um, so 
for AFLC and for um, all of us and our family of supporters, this is an important lawsuit. But if you transition that to the first lawsuit, um, which I think bears on the second in, in ways that um, are really profound for the, for the nation, and that is when Rob talks about a comparator, what does that mean? In, in real terms, it means that if you're going to impose restrictions or provide exemptions from those restrictions, the locations, the, the, the situations um, have to be comparable. And so when you tell religious organizations that they can't get together and pray because you want to protect this compelling state interest of health and, and, and avoidance of hospitalization and death and all the terribles that they, they suggest we're going to face if you don't engage in all these draconian protocols, but you allow someone to go to a restaurant. Let's just take the restaurant. <clears throat> what the state says is, well, there's a difference. In a restaurant, we make the mask except, although now there's no masking, but in those days it was you had to wear a mask unless you were actually eating or drinking. So you put on this silly mask as you walk to your table, you went to the bathroom, but while you were eating and maybe coughing and, and you know, swallowing wrong and, and talking to your friend, you're allowed to take your mask off. And that's the, the, not just the silliness of it, it's the dangerousness of it. Because their argument is, well, it's simply to allow them to eat. But then the question has to be asked, is eating at a restaurant so valuable that you give it an exception to this incredibly important, compelling state interest that you're trying to protect such that it overrides that policy, that need to protect, whereas children in a school who aren't susceptible to really bad outcomes in the main, that teaching them socialization and interaction and everything else that goes with it. That's not as important as eating in a restaurant. So the state is telling us that eating in a restaurant is more important than the proper education of our children. And that's how you make the comparison, not the way the state makes it and just says, well, eating at a restaurant is important. And that, that takes it out. It's no longer a comparator. I mean, it's just a silly argument, but it's a dangerous argument because if you allow bureaucrats to make that extension and to carve out these exceptions without real logic, then tyranny prevails. That's the end result. Bureaucrats and technocrats will take that liberty, or rather the liberty that's been stolen from us, and run amok with it. That's the history of technocrats and bureaucrats. Yeah, and you know what? A Supreme, recent Supreme Court case last year, the Fulton case, uh, was was so critical. We we've, we've uh, criticized uh, in the past um, the Smith decision, Grant written by Scalia back in the 90s, where it really eviscerated the free exercise uh, clause by saying, you know, neutral laws of general applicability, meaning if it, it, it that it's, uh, they don't violate free exercise, even if they place a substantial burden. Well, Fulton really cut that back quite a bit by going into this point that, look, when you're looking at comparators and exemptions and things, you look at what the risk and the harm are in, ter in terms of what is the government's interest. And it's not so like comparing uh, just comparing, you know, a public school to a, a private school is not sufficient because what's the, your interest? Your interest is to stop the spread of COVID. Well, but you're allowing restaurants, which is permitting the spread of COVID. 
right? And so, so it's, it, it's allows for a broader and appropriately so analysis. To me, like, for example, with the vaccine mandate, they allow a medical exemption. So if I have a medical exemption because I have an, a, an allergic reaction to the vaccine and I get an exemption, guess what? I can still get COVID. I can still spread COVID. I can do all those same things, those same harms and risks that would be if you granted one of these Navy SEALs a religious exemption, right? Because somebody who doesn't have the vaccine doesn't have the vaccine. But the government says it's okay if you have a medical uh, objection to it, but not if you have a religious objection. And quite frankly, the Navy SEALs and myself and David, I know as men of faith, our spiritual health is far more important than our physical health. Our physical bodies are finite. Our souls live for eternity, right? And so for, for, for to allow a medical exemption, but not one that's grounded in faith and spirit, then when you look at what are the harms, again, if you have a medical exemption, you're not vaccinated. If you have a religious exemption, you're not vaccinated. The harms are exactly the same. Why are you granting a medical exemption, but not granting a, a, a religious exemption? That's a problem under the, uh, under the free exercise clause. So, um, so these, these are important cases. That Fulton case was a very important case in the, uh, from the Supreme Court. And uh, still waiting for some of these really good COVID mandate cases to make it up to the Supreme Court, not just in terms of you know, these, these uh, initial injunctions and so forth, but ones that are going to make their way up on, the, uh, up on the merits. And we certainly have some that are, are working their way up as, uh, way up as well. Um, uh, let, me, so, let me, before we move on, let me just, I want yeah. to touch on something because you raised some very, uh, a very important point. And that is, some people, when you say they're raising a religious objection, sincerely held religious belief, um, they roll their eyes. They don't understand how that can overcome my personal religious belief, might overcome the public need for, for health, right, and, and protocols. Well, again, you have to look at what the government's doing. So. Um, Obviously, the government could have locked everybody up and solved the pandemic's problem, right? Put them all in solitary confinement. Um, could have, you know, told each and every one of us, as I've said before, to hold your breath until the pandemic is over and everybody dies. Well, that would solve the problem. But the government doesn't do that. It has to balance risk and benefit. As Rob pointed out, the importance, and our founding fathers understood this in the First Amendment, the importance of a sincerely held religious belief as a serious impediment to bureaucrats, bureaucrats and technocrats simply running amok over our liberty is this. If God created us, each and every one of us, um, simply to engage in physical behavior, he could have created a cow or a monkey or a robot. If that's all we are, but these men and all of us who understand the role of faith in our lives understand that each and every one of us, each individual was put in this, on this earth by God to accomplish something profoundly spiritual and important that only that individual could accomplish. No one else can. And that's how important our spiritual role is. And if you don't accomplish it, if the government can tell you your sincerely held religious belief doesn't matter to us, it's less important than a eating food in a restaurant, then you have a problem because ultimately that means that we're, we're no more important in the scheme of things to our nation, to our family, to ourselves than physical behavior. 
and we're all just the same. It doesn't matter. And that can't be. To, to just look at the case that we have going on in the Second Circuit, it's in the Court of Appeals, and um, it's being briefed now. We filed our brief. And that's where the state of New York and the city of New York said, um, you can't protest in groups. And we said, why not? You, you're, the comparator in this case was, you're allowing people to go out and walk their dogs, for goodness sakes. And as long as they follow the protocols, they can do it in huge numbers. And the same exact layout, the same number of people, instead of walking their dogs, they're still at the same social distancing, they're still wearing the mask, they can't protest. And what's the rationale there? It's the same as we saw with the restaurants and, and the religious institution. The rationale by the government bureaucrats is that free speech and freedom of association, those important First Amendment rights that come with freedom of religion, are less important than walking your dog. And that can't be the case. Anyway, that's where I yeah, think we come out on this. Well, that's and, you know, those are the rights in the First Amendment, free speech, free exercise of religion. Right. We know that the Bill of Rights is not the government conferring rights. It's a break on the power of government. And those rights are inalienable, meaning they, they come. We are endowed by our creator, as the Declaration of Independence says, with these certain inalienable rights. And uh, and, you know, the, the, the fact that they're enforcing these is just I mean, that's the definition of of tyranny. And, you know, we and we've witnessed these last two years during COVID, we have tyrannical government officials. And I'm, I'm praying that during this next election cycle, that uh, a large swath of these tyrants get kicked out of office. And hopefully that our, our judiciary will come out of hiding and uh, and actually start ruling on these uh, on these issues in ways that protect our fundamental rights and our fundamental freedoms and liberties, because it's at times during this COVID, it's like, how are we any different than China or Russia <laughs> as a segue into our next uh, next topic? Because that's where we've, we've all been under a, a serious government oppression over the last uh, these last couple of years. Um, so obviously, just kind of segueing, a hot topic right now is the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. And there was an interesting article from uh, from The Hill uh, that you sent me, David, and the and the question is right. We've been hearing Russian collusion, right? My my gosh, with all of Trump's presidency, Russian collusion, Russian collusion. They were trying to tie his hands. We're not allowing him to do virtually anything, and we've discussed before that you know this was the start of a rigging of the election. Is is the way that they they constantly hit that refrain. The media, the Democrats, who basically the same thing. Um, we're, you know, propagandizing this lie, and it is a lie. We all know it's a lie, and, and how much harm that's done to our country. But, you know, there was a Russian collusion that's kind of been going on that uh, we uh, kind of left one, went unnoticed by some, at least. Um, David, help us out here. Well, why don't you continue a little bit? Because I'm having uh, some internet connection problems here. I'm going to try to repair it. All right. Well, we there was this article from the Hill, and it was interesting. This was uh, I was talking about the title of it was "Investigate Russia's Covert Funding of U.S. Anti-Fossil Fuel Groups," and uh, the article was pointing to a, a letter written in 2017 by Representatives Lamar Smith and Randy Weber from uh, from Texas, and it's. 
And it was, it's interesting. I mean, it, it didn't, it didn't uh, resolve the issue conclusively, but it certainly shed light on and put uh, and, and presented evidence that uh, it appears that Russia may have been funneling and funding large sums of money to environmental groups. Why? To undermine the U.S.'s position in, in, uh, in the world as a, uh, as a, a global producer of uh, a major producer of, um, of energy, fossil fuels and so forth. And so, you know, as we know, they, and, you know we, we can see what the Biden administration did because all these, you know, climate change environmentalist wackos, those on the far, far left have controlled this administration and uh, they've undermined our national security by, uh, by minimizing our ability to, uh, to produce here in the United States. Right. And quite frankly, I think that gave uh, Russia the uh, sort of the impetus to go forward with this uh, with this invasion of Ukraine. But it's very interesting that they, they have evidence out there that they were funneling money through these other organizations. Really, it's not that hard to to, um, to, to really, you know, to, to hide this money through different funding sources and get it to these environmental groups so they could have an actual negative impact on our uh, ability to produce energy here in the United States. And that has serious, serious global implications, right? That's how right. Putin gets his ability to, to fund all the things he's doing is because they are a source of, uh, of energy for, for most of Europe, right? And you take that away from him, that absolutely undermines. And that's what Trump was doing, right? Trump, Trump made us for the first time, I think for the first time, it may have been, or at least within decades, we were a net, net exporter of, uh, of energy. And so our, you know, our European allies and stuff could, could have turned to us instead of turning to Russia for their energy. And right now, you know, we're begging Venezuela. We were just until recently still buying our, our energy from Russia and, and going to Iran and begging them and, and the Saudi country, the, the uh, OPEC, to get fuel. Anybody who's pulled up to a gas station anytime recently realizes that fuel costs have gone through the roof. And obviously, you know, the Biden administration, along with... Uh, the, the typical progressive mantra, never let a good crisis go to waste, uh, using you know, Russia as the blame for this uh, increase in costs of, uh, of energy and fuel, which also, by the way, raises the cost of everything else because you know, groceries and other products have to be delivered to the stores uh, by trucks and everything else. It costs fuel. And, uh, and so they're blaming everything on Russia. But you can, just, you can look at the timeline and these prices were going way up before uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. And it's specifically because of the Biden policies, these left-wing environmentalists who want to shut down, uh, you know, the oil production, natural gas production here in the United States, which is which is a, a national security issue. And if we don't realize that now, with uh, with what Putin's doing in Ukraine, then you know people never wake up. I don't I don't think they will. We just need to throw these bums out of office and get us back to uh, to energy independence. But it's very interesting. You know, it's all about Russian collusion in the election. Well, how about Russian collusion in environmental policy that is harming our national interests and our national security in a significant major way? Yeah, I apologize, Rob, for the internet and my our audience, but I think I've got it repaired here. Um, you know, what's, what's interesting as well is that let's go back to the Russian collusion argument, which we've said time and time again is the real rigging of the election. That whole narrative that was begun by the Hillary campaign people, and we know this is a fact now, and um, 
informed the White House. And in fact, there was a big meeting of Clinton-esque people who served in the administration and even apparently outside the administration and the administration and the intelligence people, Clapper and that other fellow, Brennan, um, Rice, all these um, individuals were sitting in the White House, recognizing that the Hillary campaign people were going to push this narrative and then let it go. And um, even worse than that is the appointment by Sessions of Robert Mueller to serve as, I think it was Sessions, maybe it was the interim fellow after him, but to serve as a special prosecutor to investigate this thing. And they knew there was no collusion up front. And they just manufactured this thing in order to be able to find excuses to impeach the president, to, to keep the Trump administration from achieving what it sought to achieve, especially in foreign policy, where the Trump administration was at its peak of power and success, right? The, the, the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem and Israel, all the leftists, all the statists, all the foggy bottom bureaucrats at the State Department, they all said, you can't do it because it will enrage the Arab world. And what happened? Almost right after that, the Trump administration was able to bring even additional agreements between the Gulf states and Israel in, in a way that was mind-boggling. Of course, the media just has ignored it entirely, but it opened up an entire new channel. And at the time, in addition, Trump was engaging in, in opening up oil fields and, and, and federal reserves, um, the, the pipelines. Um, we were at that point energy producers, net positive energy producers, not just energy independent. We were exporting petroleum products, oil, natural gas. What was the argument about collusion? The argument about collusion by the leftist was that somehow the Russian trolls that went on Facebook and what have you and pretended to be Americans and argued and, and, and you know, for one side or the other, they seemed to be arguing mostly against Hillary, but they also had arguments against Trump. But they were out there trying to gin up social discord. That was the argument and affect the elections that way. Well. You know, in a free country, um, aside from the little kind of crimes of, of pretending to be Americans and taking IDs, which some of these trolls did, but not all, um, the, the real claim is that somehow opening our system up and allowing people from all over the world to comment on our elections is somehow going to change the outcome. I'm not sure how, if, if I can do that, and I'm free to do that as an American citizen. How am I going to stop someone from Russia or from you know, South Africa from going on a platform and commenting? I don't get that argument at all. And if the, if the American electorate is so foolish to simply allow some troll who's commenting on some website or some Instagram or something is going to change their ability to freely choose a candidate, because that's what it has to do. Um, 
then we don't have a very good system. And I would argue we have the best system that man can devise. And um, so to worry about that is to worry about the system itself. Now flip the coin as Rob suggests and look at what was really going on during the so-called Russian collusion. Russia knows that its primary source of financial, military, um, and political diplomatic power is its energy resources. And those resources are the petroleum, natural gas, and coal that Russia possesses. And the oligarchs and Putin control that, and they're you know fairly very filthy rich individuals as well, including Putin, but that's their source. So the, the fact that they were funding these environmental groups um, to do their bidding um, is a real collusion. And there you have the issue, not just of free speech purely, but you have this idea of nonprofit groups that are given a tax exemption and are not supposed to be doing the lobbying work of foreign powers. And if you do, you've got to register receiving all these monies to do Russia's bidding. Now, their argument's going to be, we were doing our own bidding. We progressives hate petroleum products, and we're willing to bring this country to its knees um, to get to very unviable economic sources of alternative fuels. And so their money didn't change our message, they just helped us bring our message to the people and to the government. Well, um, that could be an argument and I'm willing to listen to it, but that simply points to the fact that the progressives and Russia are aligned. The progressives want to bring this country and its ability to be energy independent and in fact, energy net positive exporters to our knees, recognizing that Russia and China and India, they're not going to be going along along the same pathway. Russia is no more going to um, reduce its ability to produce these petroleum products and coal and to export them. So they're going to do everything they can to keep that flow going. And there's one little spin here by the Biden administration. It's like there are COVID protocols to make a comparison that um, would have to probably require some development. And that is what? The Biden administration is carving out all kinds of exceptions on the sanctions against Russia in order to create the ability for Russia to negotiate a new deal with Iran over the nuclear power plants, which Iran is not going to abide by under any stretch. And even the old agreement allowed so many loopholes. So what do you see? You see the Biden administration saying, you know, Russia's a war, you know, Putin's a war criminal, Russia's this, that. And yet when it comes to sanctions, they don't believe that those sanctions against the Russian aggression in Ukraine is as important as creating a nuclear deal with Iran, which is simply going to allow Iran to continue to produce nuclear energy and, and develop their nuclear war capabilities. It just makes no sense. But that, if you want to know what Russian collusion is, 
You've got the Russian collusion with the environmental groups, and now you've got it with the Biden administration to create another secret deal that's not going to go through Senate confirmation like the first one and simply be imposed upon the, the U.S. national security interest unconstitutionally. Yeah, you know, it's, it's actually right. So we were, even during the, at the beginning part of the invasion of Ukraine, we were purchasing oil from Russia, right? It wasn't until a, a week or so ago. And, and it, if you think about how the, the left thinks about this, it just makes zero sense, right? Is this a, is this a global, you know, uh, climate change issue? Or is it just something that happens in Texas or wherever we drill oil? You think Russia produces a barrel of oil that's more uh, uh, environmental friendly than we do here in the United States? You got to be kidding me. I mean, they don't care. They don't have an EPA over there that's, uh, you know, has have their hands tied on on how they're getting their energy and their and their fuel sources. It, sources. It makes zero sense. You know, you mentioned about the with the Iran nuclear deal, right? As we know, the Biden administration is is uh, resurrecting that deal, probably because of the hubris, right? It was something that Obama did, and Biden's part of that. Trump nixed it, rightfully uh, rightfully so. But uh, it's our friend uh, Andy McCarthy, uh, in an article that he wrote uh, just yesterday, it's titled Biden Caves on Sanctions Over Russia's War Crimes Against Ukraine to Preserve Russia's Sponsorship of Terrorist Iran's Nuclear Program. And so they're using Russia to help negotiate this, uh, this nuclear, the, uh, the nuclear, uh, the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, to resurrect that from uh, from the old uh, you know Obama administration, and um, in this article he points out that the Russia state-controlled energy conglomerate has a ten billion dollar contract with Iran's atomic energy organization to expand Tehran's nuclear plant. So what does that mean? Even though we we supposedly have all these severe sanctions on Russia because they're committing all these war crimes, one of the carve-outs is. Except you can get ten billion, have a ten billion dollar contract with Iran to get this nuclear power, this nuclear power uh, deal down between the U.S. and Iran. And my, you you can't make this stuff up. And and in fact, uh, and and this is you know Andy doesn't usually start his articles this way, but uh, this is the way he started this one. Some days you can't even make it up. I mean that's a direct quote when he's starting this up. It's unbelievable. Here they are, right? Where we got Russia invading Ukraine all these sanctions, but we're going to do a carve out so that you can get money so you can help us create this Iran nuclear deal, which we all know is going to allow Iran to get a nuclear weapon. Oh, and that'll be a much safer place for everybody, especially for, uh, you know, our, our Jewish friends in Israel, right? Because Iran has a declared public policy to exterminate all the Jews in Israel. So it's like, and what better way to do that than through a nuclear weapon? And the Biden administration is just going to keep them going a little bit closer and do a carve out for these sanctions to allow them to get there. It's like Andy says, you just you just can't make this stuff up. And where's our media? You know, and that's almost, you know, they're gone. I mean, I don't even know why even even mentioning that, because we all know where they are. They're nowhere to be found. Uh, Right. They're out there still peddling this nonsensical Trump Russian collusion. And, uh, and not investigating things that they, they need to investigate because they're just the propaganda arm of the, uh, of the Democrat Party and, it's, and mostly it's left-wing uh, party. Um, so speaking of Ukraine, I just want to 
I, I want to just uh, move to one other. You you also sent me this other uh, article about an NPR interview with the former ambassador to Ukraine. Um, our listeners, viewers will probably remember this name, Marie Yovanovitch, right? She was one of the ones that uh, was complaining loudly about Trump and how he uh, supposedly made wanted her to take a loyalty oath. And, you know, we don't do that in this country. But yet, apparently, she, you know, She's uh, she's powerful enough or was powerful enough as the ambassador that she should be making her own foreign policy. Right. And so she creates this notion. Oh, it's a loyalty. oath. No, it's not a loyalty oath, Marie <laughs> ambassador. It's the one who decides foreign policy for the United States of America is the president of the United States. And that's what the Constitution says. And oh, by the way, if you're not going to abide by the foreign policy that he wants and how he wants you to be an ambassador there in Ukraine, guess what? You're out of here because that's the way it works. And you are not a, uh, you know, an, an ambassador in and of yourself to make foreign policy for Ukraine for the United States of America. I mean, the hubris of these people, it's just, it's unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. David. Well, you know, um, with the case of um, the former ambassador to Ukraine, um, typically in the way our foreign policy machinery is set up is that the ambassador is a political appointee by the president. And typically, and often the case, unless it's a real hot spot, um, these ambassadors don't even have any foreign diplomatic credentials. They're close friends, donors, businessmen, what have you, of the president. And he knows that if he tells them through channels, this is the policy I want to impose in that country, because they have this close alignment with the president. And it's not the person, Donald Trump, it's with the presidency, the office, the commander in chief, the head of all, has plenary powers over foreign affairs mm-hmm. in the main. And the fact is-, is In fact, that's when the, the president's power is at its zenith, is, right. is in foreign affairs, more than anything, right. and that's granted by the constitution. And to carry out these policies that are laid out by the president through his ambassador, you have these bureaucrats and technocrats, the, the foggy bottom, you know, these, they call them career State Department officials. Well, um, Yovanovitch was that, she was a career official. And it just happened to be that Ukraine was a hotspot, so she was appointed, but she was acting as this shadow government. She was doing her own thing and deciding what was good and bad for Ukraine and the United States. And um, the president was hearing things and recalled her and wanted to make certain that she was going to follow his policy. And if she didn't like it, she had the option to resign or to be given a desk job somewhere because that's what bureaucrats do. They don't get fired. right? They either resign and go to work for some um, big company and get paid big bucks or a big law firm um, or um, they stay in government forever and or retire with great pension. But that aspect of her relationship uh, in this article was um, explained to be that um, her being recalled and put at some desk um, was a terrible affair for the U.S. national security interests and foreign policy. That's how important this woman was, at least how she perceived herself to be. And um, 
the fact that the president wanted her to be loyal to his policies was somehow an evil scheme. And what she argued in this NPR article is that the Russian government didn't invade Ukraine during the Trump presidency, not because foreign powers like Putin and China worried about Trump, because they knew his policy about make America great again was not a neocon policy, and neither Rob and I are, are neocons and arguing for war in Ukraine. There's national security interests there to protect, but which modalities are used to protect that national interest um, is not necessarily war, and I've certainly not advocated war, and I know Rob hasn't, and, and none of the steps that might lead to war. But her argument is that Putin didn't go to war against Trump, not because of that, not because Trump had a strong foreign policy and the leaders of the world knew that he was going to protect America's national interest firmly. No, because he was in collusion with Russia, right? A false narrative. It never was. Because he was in collusion with, with Russia and because his criticisms of NATO um, were, um, were in line with Russia's, that he waited. He didn't need to invade Ukraine during Russia, during Trump's administration, because Trump was doing everything he wanted. Where did that come from? It was made up. And this <laughs> he was, is the woman. He was doing just the opposite. He was doing just the, just he was the absolutely undermining Putin and Russia's power in the world through Trump's energy policy. <laughs> exactly right. Oh, gosh. If, if there was anything that put Putin on his heels was the low energy prices that were low because America was in there competing against OPEC. OPEC didn't control entirely the, the Gulf states and, and others that have joined them, didn't control the pricing of oil futures, you know, which is an, another one of those kind of stupid arguments progressives make, mm -hmm. that we saw inflation before the invasion. And of course, then it was all about supply chain issues and the pandemic. And then the moment Biden got into office and he closed the Keystone pipeline, oil prices began their climb. And of course, with the invasion even more and with the sanctions even more because there's less oil in the market. And the argument by the progressives is now nah, oil prices are not, you know, they don't go up and down based upon the policies of a president. And that is a stupid argument. It takes yeah. it takes a kind of academic argument about all the variables that go into market supply side and, and, and demand side pricing, which are multiple and variable and many fold. No one disagrees. But if a president says the policy of this country is to shut down oil um, opportunities and federal reserves, to shut down the Keystone Pipeline, to go to alternative energy, to make it harder and harder for, for um, petroleum products to, to be the engine that drives this country. When that becomes the policy, what happens to oil futures? You can see it. I looked at the, the, the graphs start going back up, even though they had come down with our energy independence and had been historically low for very long periods of time. So now what is Biden doing to try to offset this explosion in, in pricing? 
because if we impose sanctions on Russian oil, which we should, of course, prices are going to go up. And why? Because we're dependent upon them. And we've made Europe dependent upon Russia. So Biden is running around asking foreign governments, OPEC, please produce more Venezuela, oil. Venezuela, Iran. Venezuela, our enemies, please I produce know. more oil. Let's, let's have more global warming as long as it's not the U.S. doing it for national security interest. It is, we, you're not going to go to alternative energy. That's not going to get you energy independent. Market will determine, market forces will determine that. And you can you can inch it along with government policy, but in the meantime, over the decades, maybe the century or two that it would take to be energy independent based upon today's technology on alternative fuel sources, energy sources, the reality is you're crippling the United States and you're taking away our ability to control foreign events that affect our national security interests. If a foreign event doesn't affect our national security interests from a country's perspective, it should be a yawn. We, we don't get involved in, in global affairs that don't affect our national interests. Yeah, and you know, these, the flip side of crippling the United States is it also has the effect of strengthening our enemies. So you have, so it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, double-edged sword and, and it's all related to, to Biden's policies that he put in place before the Russian Ukraine invasion. And, and anybody who's been pumping gas since Biden took office uh, knows that. And they've been going up steadily, steadily, steadily. And certainly they got a bump up because now we had, uh, we have less, uh, less oil available after the uh, Russian Ukraine uh, invasion. And so the, supplies down and costs going up. The other thing they always do is, you know, they, they blame it on Russia and they also blame it on, um, you know, on uh, energy execs, right? Oh, they all want to line their pockets and make more money. So it's because they, they're charging more right now. They're gouging prices. I mean, it's the, the arguments say at some point you got to think the American people are that stupid. Uh, and, and they must think of that stupid because they keep peddling these, uh, this, this fake news, these fake stories just to, to cover themselves. And, and by you know, the way, and, but, and, you know, by the way, the, the progressives, when it came to the, the, the various COVID protocols and the billions of dollars that went into big farm for these vaccines and the mask manufacturers, which were mostly in China, and the hand sanitizer, which were mostly in China. The fact is, is that the left, prior to COVID, one of the biggest criticizers of the big farm and their effect on, on government policy was by the left. Right, big farm was evil. Big co big company, and indeed Johnson and Johnson and and others, the big man, big farm manufacturers, paid billions of dollars, and are still paying for their involvement in the opioid, you know, pandemic. Right, where they were engaged in all sorts of kind of bad behavior to promote sales. All of a sudden, though, with COVID, big farm is is absolutely saintly. They do no wrong. Their research can be not, cannot be criticized. Nothing. Just let them jab you and make billions of dollars. So you, it, it makes no sense the way we treat these things. Yeah. Well, uh, it looks like we're almost at that hour time. So I, I don't have any, uh, I don't think it's worthwhile to jump into, a, into another topic. Um, we will, uh, 
we'll continue obviously this this watch on on Russia. And I, I encourage people go to the uh, go look at that National Review article that Andy McCarthy published on March 16th. Biden caves on sanctions over Russia's war crimes against Ukraine to preserve Russia's sponsorship of terrorist Iran's nuclear program. And as he said, some days you can't even make it up. And Andy is typical. Um, he's not one of these you know journalists that just relies on anonymous sources. He always he always gets to the source documents and and uh, and has the straight scoop. And that's a very interesting. Uh, very interesting article in, in light of all the things that we discussed today. So, but that's all the time we have. Uh, as always, we uh, thank you for joining us. We look forward to our next discussion. Our video casts are posted on our Rumble channel and uh, our podcasts are posted on Spotify, Stitcher, and perhaps uh, other platforms out there where you listen to your podcasts and where our podcasts have not been censored. <laughs> so if you can find it, great. I know it is still on Spotify and Stitcher. And if you like the content, please uh, follow us. We're trying to grow our audience and uh, please spread the word. And uh, as always, we, uh, we thank you again for, for listening to us and uh, may God bless you and may he continue to bless America. Amen.